My ladies, gentles, in you come, and those who are neither, or some, come hither all such tales to hear of misrule, magic, flight, and fear, of things that unleash pandemonium, and heroes to defend us from them, and for those who thusly need inform me, in the show notes you'll find content warnings. So cautioned, audience, come with me to the Pantaloon Society. Episode 6 A Little Mischief Long ago in Ireland, there was a farmer's son. He was a kind-hearted boy inclined to be more generous than sensible, and his father often chastised him for giving away too much and not thinking of himself. That day he had been sent to work the fields, scaring off birds and weeding. The day was warm and he had become hot and fatigued, so he sat for a while to rest among the corn. As he sat there, he heard a great pushing sound approaching, although it was a still day with not a breath of wind, and he thought to himself that something strange was afoot. So he sat quietly and waited until the whooshing sound blew past him through the air and went rustling through the corn, all the way down the hill to the old ruined mill by the black pond, where it was whispered the fairies met on moonlit nights. Now the farmer's son was a curious lad, and he had his suspicions about what it was that might be whooshing through his father's fields like that. So he called out to the air, Picker! Picker, show me yourself, and I'll give you my big coat to keep warm. At that, the air stilled, and out of the corn came a snorting young bull with curving horns, lashing his tail around in the air like a whip. But the farmer's son was also a brave lad, and he pulled off his big coat, just as he promised, and cast it over the bull with the lashing tail. All at once, the bull became as quiet as a mouse, and as the lad watched, it shrunk and shriveled away, until in its place stood a wrinkled old man, only as tall as the boy's waist, clothed in tattered rags. Oh, it's a fine coat indeed, and a good boy you are to give me such a big, lovely, warm thing. When the moon is up tonight, you come down to the old mill, and you shall have good luck. And then the old man turned and hurried off through the fields towards the mill. The lad headed home for the night and waited for the moon to rise, so he could sneak off down to the mill and see what he could see. When he went in through the empty stone doorway, he saw many sacks of corn strewed about, leaning up against the old millstone. He waited there until near midnight, but eventually his eyes grew heavy and he fell asleep. When he woke early in the morning, all the sacks of corn had become sacks of flour but nobody had passed him or awoken him. The next night he determined to see what was what, so he went back down to the mill, and this time he crept behind a rotten old door and sat down to watch for the night through the keyhole. The church bells upon the hill rang midnight, and exactly as they did, the moon peeped out from behind a cloud, and six men, each no higher than the boy's waist, came into the old mill. After them came the old man from the field. All were clad in tattered rags. They picked up the sacks of corn laying around and swiftly ground them into flour in a matter of minutes. Once they were done, the lad ran home to tell his father what had happened, and that night the two of them watched the little men come to grind the corn. 
The lad's father saw there was money to be made here, so he and his son brought down their own corn to be ground and left it there overnight, and sure enough, the next day, the corn was all ground without him ever having to pay a penny to the millers. Soon the farmer grew wealthy, and the folk thereabouts wondered how his corn was all ground so quick, and without him ever spending a penny on it. But neither he nor the lad ever told anyone about the puka, in case it upset the creatures to have more visitors to their weird mill. Meanwhile, the lad would often go down to the mill and hide behind the door, so he could watch the little folk grinding the corn so quickly. He saw that the poor creatures had nothing but rags to go about in, and he felt sorry for them. So he asked his father for money, and bought a handsome coat of pea-green wool and a shirt, and breeches of the softest linen and a fine silk cravat, and he laid it one night on the great millstone with a note saying it was for his good friend the puka. Then he hid behind the door to watch. When the puka arrived, he was delighted and put on the clothes, and strutted up and down, admiring how he looked. Oh, it's a fine set of clothes indeed, are these for me? I shall look like a proper gentleman. I shall labour in the mill no more, for gentlemen do not grind corn. At that, the puka cast his old rags away and ran out of the mill. The six little men did not come to grind the corn that night, or the next, or ever again, no matter how many times the lad returned. He grew sad at the loss of his little friend, and he wandered in the cornfields calling out for him and asking him to come back to him. But the puka never returned. The farmer had already made enough money to last them a lifetime, and he had done well in business by investing it wisely, and so he sent the lad off to a university to become a scholar and a gentleman. He bought a big house as well, with land and servants, and lived finely. In time, a good match was found for the lad, a beautiful educated lady, with bright eyes and the proud bearing of a queen of the fairies. On the day when they were to be wed, after all the speeches had been made, and the gifts given and the dancing about to begin, the happy couple were about to share a toast, when before them on the table appeared a fine golden cup, filled to the brim with sparkling wine. Nobody could say where it had come from, but the lad guessed it was a gift from his old friend the Puka, so he gratefully drank from it, and gave it to his new bride as well. For the rest of their days they were blessed with luck and prosperity, and the lad kept the golden cup, golden as the corn the Puka had ground, and passed it on to his children, and it is said his descendants have it among their most treasured possessions to this day. Let us go now, dear audience, across sea and land to London, where we have not returned this story for a while. Back, in fact, to the Tan Brick Children's Hospital, specifically to the sixth floor, which was the location of the hospital's clinical research facility. Now, as you may be able to guess, a clinical research facility is the sort of place where clinical research happens. They are often in, or near, or associated with hospitals for easy access to specialist doctors and other useful expertise, and sadly, in case of emergencies. All sorts of research may be performed in such places, new drugs and therapies may be tested, and old ones may be compared to each other, or to the new ones. Really, any therapy could be tested, anything at all, even. Hello! Welcome to Laughter Therapy! I'll be your doctor today, Dr. McClown! Contrary to what the groans of Jen's audience would suggest, laughter is purportedly an excellent medicine. The best, so they say. To test this premise, a research study had been devised, funded by a small charity whose main aim was to find ways to treat intractable depression in teenagers. It covered various holistic therapies of interest, treatments intended to improve the general well-being of the patient. Laughter was one of the treatments under scrutiny, but there were various others. Patients were also given sessions of hypnotherapy, art therapy, mindfulness and guided meditation amongst others. It was of the type known as a crossover study, one where each patient would be placed in a group, and each group would receive all treatments at a pre-described point during the study period, with a washout or switchover period between each one. Today a group of ten teenagers, Group C, having already spent a week being led on guided animal meditations, were receiving their period of laughter therapy, to be conducted twice a week. What's this in your ear? Truth be told, Jen was not entirely sure of the efficacy of the intervention they were delivering. They were used to performing a show in front of a room full of happy children, 
Even the ones in hospital did want to be cheered up, and welcomed the silly prank she got up to. Producing something from the ear of one of those children would result in delighted smiles, or at worst, some snotty budding critic saying that he'd seen it done better before or elsewhere. The teenagers were an entirely different and more difficult sort of audience. Half were on their phones ignoring her entirely, in one case, watching videos with the sound on. One she suspected had had said phone removed from him as he kept looking enviously over to those still in possession of theirs. Two were simply talking to each other, over her. Another was staring at his face. Another was huddled in the corner in an oversized hoodie just staring at her hands. They were certainly not engaging wholeheartedly with the spirit of the thing. Jen felt sad. There was very little they could do to cheer these young people up. But they had a job to do and they were being paid to do it, so they would do it to the best of their ability. What you watching? Huh? Jen was, as you were informed in episode 3, dear audience, quick and light of foot, and quite good at misdirection. It is easy enough for a skilled clown to juggle a few things on one side of a person, accidentally drop a ball in such a way that it rolls in one direction, drawing the eye, and then one appears on entirely the other side of them, peering over their shoulder, and makes them jump, much to the amusement of their peers. Oh, it's a makeup video! Cool. Have you seen my makeup? It's good, isn't it? Not sure if I'm blending the edge of the foundation quite right, though. I've got a bit of a line. The contouring's great, though. I'm very pleased with it. <laughs> it seems like Jen may be starting to win their audience over, perhaps? Alas, time flies, and they are already approaching the end of their allotted intervention. And here, to inform the assembled persons of this, is research nurse Neil Woodford. We all like a man in uniform, don't we, dear audience? Well, maybe not all uniforms. But how about a nicely ironed blue tunic with pockets full of pens, tourniquets, and a fob watch pinned to the front? Neil was tall and rather wiry, with the kind of muscles and prominent tendons that are built by dragging heavy chairs and beds around a lot. He also had the sort of kind but weary smile often developed by nurses who work in children's hospitals. Are you all having fun in here? Not a bit of it. It's all very serious. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but time's up, I'm afraid. The teenagers needed no second urging to exit the session. Only the girl in the oversized hoodie paused just before leaving and almost in a whisper said that she thought the juggling was good. A few moments later, though, the lounge area of the clinical research facility was quite empty, but for Jen and Nurse Neil. Whew. Tough crowd? Aye, but it's not their fault. They're going through a rough time, all of them. Heh, <laughs> listen to me. Obviously, you know that. Yeah. <laughs> they could put their phones down for five minutes to at least give you a chance, though, couldn't they? But there are very important makeup videos to watch. Very important. Stick around while I fill out the report forms and file them in the notes. Sure, you can have Dr. McClone's extremely qualified medical opinion on the kid's response to therapy. Ahem, <clears throat> uninterested. Bored. Probably not valuable. Perhaps a waste of time. Further research needed. Well, you're certainly cheering me up. Let me write that down. Hang on, that's weird. What? I could have sworn I came in here with ten sets of notes. I've only got nine now. Emily, Joshua, Jamie, Ethan, Matthew... Aisha, Olivia, Ryan, Hannah, Megan. I'm missing Megan O'Connor. Did you leave her somewhere? Maybe? I left it on the nurse's station? You start filling your notes. I'll go get Megan's. Okay, come back if you can't find him. Jen was happy to help, and also had very little else to do that afternoon. They left Neil, carefully adding dates and details to forms, and went to the nurse's station to look for a set of notes labelled Megan O'Connor. The ward clerk was bemused to find a clown asking for a set of notes, but produced them nonetheless. According to her, they had been found sitting on top of a clinical waste bin in the room down the corridor and had been dropped off at the station by one of the doctors. Jen thanked her, and was about to go and bring the notes to Neil, when they spotted out of the corner of her eye the subject of the notes. 
Megan herself sitting on a chair in the small waiting room, still huddled in her oversized hoodie. There was someone else sitting with her, on the chair next to her. A little old man, in curiously old-fashioned clothes. He looked concerned about something, then he looked up at Jen and shot her a glance of pure fury. Concerned and unnerved at being stared at, so she hurried away to head back to the other room. Apparently he left the notes on the clinical waste bin somewhere. I don't see how I could have. The wall clerk put them on my desk for me and I picked them up from there. Weird. Maybe someone picked him up by mistake? Maybe. How come- Jen's query was interrupted when, for some unaccountable reason, the lights began to flicker. It lasted a few moments before they came back on again. What was that? Hey, you don't need to turn the lights off, we're still in here. Did you see someone? No, but someone must have switched the lights off by mistake. Sure. And do you know who the old man is sitting with Megan in the waiting room? Megan's still out there. My mum's sometimes a bit late, busy with work. There's an old man with her. Just on his own? Yeah, one sec, I'll check. Jen popped their head out of the door and peered into the corridor. There was no one near the light switch. And now there was no one in the waiting room. No Megan and no little old man. When they asked the ward clerk, she said Megan's mother had come to pick her up. No, she hadn't seen anyone else. Jen was starting to get a prickling feeling in the back of her neck. She returned to the room. Whoever he was, he's gone. Neil, I'm going to head off if that's okay. I want you to go somewhere and talk to someone about something. Sure, see you Friday. Hey, see you. Look, yeah, there may be a perfectly normal explanation for flashing lights and moving notes of mysterious furnishing old men, but I had a bit of a funny feeling, like the one I got with Charlie's puppet, but not quite the same, you can? As you might have guessed, the place Jen had decided to go was the Pantaloon Society, and the person who Jen had decided to talk to was Dr. Harrington. The good doctor was very interested in any odd goings on in the children's hospital, and when Jen phoned her, had headed down to the society as soon as she was able. It's certainly odd, I grant you, but a little non-specific. Pranks and mysterious lights suggest ghosts or fairies, but it could be one of any number of such beings. Perhaps we can consult the Enchiridion. The Enki what you what? Enchiridion. It's Greek for handbook. Come with me. Dr. Harrington led Jen through the main hall of the society towards the big door leading into the formal auditorium, now library. The seats had all been removed long ago, but their metal housings remained, sunk into the floor, making walking across it feel odd underfoot. The seats had been replaced by rows of metal shelving through which they picked their way until they reached the stage. In the centre of it, on a lectern, was an enormous book. The lectern itself was shaped like a hand. In fact, it appeared to be an old piece of scenery painted gold, in the shape of a hand. Dr. Harrington pulled on a conservator's glove and opened the book very carefully. The first few pages were ancient and appeared to be made of some kind of skin, perhaps vellum, which had been cut down from a longer piece. Later pages were heavy rough paper, and the paper became finer as Dr. Harrington leafed further through. There were remnants of previous bindings and right at the back a number of loose leaves that had clearly been added to be bound in later. It was a curious book indeed. The association with a teenager would suggest a poltergeist, the pranks and the disappearing items. Perhaps a pixie? Have you ever seen a pixie? No. I have encountered a poltergeist, though. Very unpleasant one. There's no reasoning with them. Very rude creatures. The fair folk, I understand one could potentially replicate politeness or gifts. Can ye? Jen, is something the matter? Is Megan in danger, Dr. H? Possibly. I suppose we'll have to find out. Aye. 
have every faith in your abilities. Friday wasn't the next session at the CRF? I... Tea? Please. Friday came, and Jen arrived bright and early at the clinical research facility, hoping it was not immediately obvious how much they were vibrating with anxiety. However, when the teenagers appeared, there was one notable missing person. Megan was not there. Jen was not sure whether to be relieved or worried. Once another hour of vain attempts to amuse teenagers with juggling had passed, Jen went to find Neil. Hello. Any better this time? Not at all. Where's Megan? Yeah, I wondered if you'd ask. She's actually in one of the rooms down the corridor. Her mum dropped her off for the session, but she wasn't feeling very well. Can I see her? You can see if she's feeling better. I'd have called her mum to get her, but she asked me not to. Said she didn't want to upset her. That's... yeah, yeah, it is. I'll go and say hi. At the end of the corridor in the clinical research facility, beyond the bright wards, were a number of small private rooms for seeing single patients, each with a desk and a small bed, complete with a roll of blue hygienic paper to cover it. Jen found Megan in the second to last one, curled up on the bed playing a game on her phone. She was facing the wall. As Jen approached the doorway, something tickled at the back of her mind and sent a tingle down her spine. They paused and glanced around the room. What was the matter? Something was off. Yes, on the wall, there was a faint shadow of an old man, where there was no old man to cast any shadow. It was moving. The lights flickered, making the girl look up, and it moved again. Closer this time. Uh Uh-oh. It would have been nice if Jen could have said running was a tactical manoeuvre to get the unknown entity away from the girl in the room, but actually Jen had just run because they were scared. As they ran, the lights began to flicker on and off again. They took a right down the corridor. This was both sensible, because it was further away from the nurse's station, but also unwise as it led to nothing but more rooms in a dead end. Heart fluttering in their mouth, they stopped but did not turn around and took a deep breath. They were a performer of the Pantaloon Society. This was their job now, dealing with this sort of thing. There was nobody else around to help. It was up to them. Right, let's try being polite. Mr Poltergeist, uh, my name's Jen, and I'd like a word if you'd be so kind. For 300 years have I protected the descendants of Patrick O'Connor. From fire and misfortune, from war and penury, from she and soldier, and from matches like you, painted face. And there he was. A little old man with white whiskers stood in the corridor in front of Jen, in a pea-green frock coat and a tattered silk cravat and dusty breeches. His fists were clenched, and his face was red as an angry tomato. Wait, you're looking after Megan? I thought you were hurting her, making her sick and depressed. I was trying to get you away from her. At that, the little man visibly deflated. He looked weary, so very weary, and tears began to well up in his dark brown eyes and dribble down his large red nose. Fair in misfortune can I fight. The children who follow her home, or call her names at school, them I can trip and they destroy. But I cannot tell what happens in the small box of light, and why it makes her weep at nights. I cannot entreat her to speak to a mother or father about those things. I do not have the knowing of the things of this world. Oh, right. Uh, it's a bit complicated to explain, but probably the children are calling our names through the small box of light, if that makes sense. Not at all. Well, I tried. She used to be a bright and happy little thing. She played with her coloured toys that made noises and flashes, the like of which any child in my youth would think a marvel. Now she cries and she hides herself. 
makes herself small, and my heart is breaking for her. I'm sorry. I see now that you are not the danger to her. The danger I've seen is coming soon. But not now. Nor are the people in this place. I will stop interfering with her things. Yeah, please. I mean, this is a hospital. They're trying to help her get better. Thank you, though, for protecting her. I'm glad someone is. Look, I've got an idea. I used to be a pretty lonely kid myself. I'd have loved to know there was a magic elf. Pika! Pika witch! I'm a Pika, not some fancy prancing elf. Sorry, Pika. I'd have loved to know there was a Pika in my family looking after me. It'd be great. I explain a lot as well. How about you and me go to Megan and tell about you? I should not reveal myself. You revealed yourself to me. You're a witch. That's different. New time, new rules. I think we should try anything that might make Megan feel better. Who knew? Reluctantly, the puka agreed. The two of them went to the girl curled up in the little room, and Jen knocked on the door. Megan uncurled from the ball she was forming around her phone, and her eyes widened in surprise at the sight of the short clown, and the puka in the pea coat and cravat standing at the door. Hello, little Megan. Oh, it's you? It is. I haven't seen you since I was little. It's you'll be seeing a lot more of me in the future now. Jen left the two of them to experience the joy of being reunited, on the pretense of needing to remove her makeup. When she returned from the toilets, she found Neil waiting for her at the nurse's station. Hello. You just missed Megan again. Her mum came to pick her up. Finally. Got stuck at work again. I... I tried to cheer her up a bit. She was still pretty quiet, but she was smiling. She said to tell you, uh, thanks for helping her find an old friend. Does that make sense? Doesn't to me. Yeah. It does. Jen smiled to themselves, picked up their case, and bid farewell to Neil until next week, quietly hoping the next week's work at the hospital would not come with an additional audience of fairies, evil puppets, or any other supernatural complication. Out in the car park, Megan opened the door of her mother's car. Inside, a fairy fellow in a pea-green frock coat sat in one of the seats, turned and grinned at her. She heard a laugh behind the sleeve of her hoodie and climbed in next to him. Across the car park from the car, in a doorway, a shadowy figure looked down at something in its hand. There was a flash of light on something shiny. A tiny object with a glass face, like a watch, or a compass. The figure looked up at Megan's mother's car, and then down at the object in its hand. Inside the car, the puka's eyes narrowed and he sniffed the air like a dog scenting an intruder. He flicked a finger and muttered something. The dark figure looked down at its hand again, looked up at the car, then shook its head and turned away. The Pantaloon Society is a Cytogram Here production by Lou Sutcliffe, AM Pronouns, distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. This episode used sounds from freesound.org. For full accreditation, content warnings and transcripts, please see the show notes. To be kept up to date on the show, please do follow on Twitter, at Pantaloonsong. Farewell, dear audience, and thank you for listening.